following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Genesis chapter 9, as we continue our study in the book of Genesis, and Dave nailed it. What a great marriage retreat. Uh, And Bill Hurd did a fantastic job last Sunday uh, preaching God's word to us about the new covenant and this new commission that God has given us to take this thing to the nations. And we are going to talk about that today. Um, it is certainly challenging, isn't it, when you look around the world and the times that we're living in to not get discouraged. Uh, it doesn't it feel like everything is on the precipice of disaster. Uh, just this week or last couple of weeks, we've seen some banks failing. And if you're like me, you immediately begin to add to wonder, I wonder if my bank is going to fail. If you are looking around and you're seeing the stock market go up and down, if you're a cryptocurrency fan, uh, good on you. Uh, you make me a little nervous, but I, if you're living with those ups and downs of that market, you can feel the anxieties that goes with it. Not to mention the interest rates that just keep climbing and talking to some who are wanting to be home buyers, realizing that the interest rates are just pricing them out and those who are trying to sell are wondering, man, are we ever going to sell our house? There's plenty to fret about when you look at the the financial world around you a little bit. Not to mention then you throw in the political turmoil of the day. Isn't it funny that everybody feels like we're on the verge of tyranny? It's just a matter of which side of the tracks you come from. If you're from the left, you think there's a tyrant on the right. If you're on the right, you feel like there's a tyrant on the left. Globally, there's the war in Europe. There is new weapons that are being made. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there are new weapons being used. There's biochemical warfare scares, there's geopolitical chaos, and there's rising conflicts between the East and the West. Not to mention then when you come into our own culture and you see the fight about gender ideologies and all the sexual ethic issues, it feels like everything from political to financial to global to ethical issues, there seems to be new reasons on the verge every day to be shocked. And this doesn't take into account the consideration and the challenges of our own personal lives. I mean, you've got your own family feuds that you're dealing with. Maybe this morning, uh, you know, your two-year-old and four-year-old were going at it. And you know that feeling. Maybe it's just health scares. Something new has popped up this week, and the doctor's asking you to come back in for something that you've got to talk to them about. Maybe it's job insecurities. We all feel this sense of discouragement and concern over what may happen on the next horizon. But let me deposit something into your mind that I hope today is going to give you hope. Every generation in the history of the world has thought the world was collapsing. Every generation in the history of the world has had earth-shattering challenges, and the reason it has had that is because sin and rebellion against God are everywhere and have been going on since the beginning of time. So you may sit around thinking to yourself, this is all new as if nothing has ever been seen like this ever before in the history of civilization. And while the technology may be a little different, which we could even argue that a little bit, I would also encourage you to realize that every generation in the history of the world has struggled with the same type of thing. That's what we're going to see this morning in Genesis chapter 9 and 10. We're going to see sin advancing to the nations of the world. And yet in the middle of sin advancing around the world, we're going to see this subtle, quiet building of the people of God because of the grace of God. That's what we're going to see this morning. Here's what I hope we'll learn, and this is the big idea. If you're new with us, you should have got an outline when you walked in the door. The outline will have a big idea on it. And here's the big idea that we want to hit on this morning. The righteous will honor God and others, and God will bless them for it. Sin fills the nations, but God preserves his people of faith. I want to read that again. The righteous will honor God and others, and God will bless them for it. Sin fills the nations, but God preserves 
the people of faith. Now keep that on the screen for a moment. You're going to notice that this is going to help us because it's going to help you see something, that God is not shocked by the stuff that he sees in your world. God doesn't open up the news feed in the morning and go, oh, no, this happened again. He's not shocked. And neither should we. This should also help us to realize that sin has been at work in the world and all the happenings of the world, wars and recessions and personal challenges, will not thwart God from working out his perfect plan in and through his people until he gets it done. Therefore, listen, people of God, you have no reason to fret. You have no reason to be unrighteously angry. You have no reason to be unbiblically anxious because you have a God who has seen it all, knows it all, is in the middle of it all, and working it all out for his great glory and the good of his people. Don't ever forget that. So with all that in mind, let's stand together. We're going to read Genesis 9, 18 through 27, and we're going to read just a couple verses out of verse 10. Prepare for weirdness. Genesis chapter 9, this is the reading of God's word. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his from his wine, he knew that and knew that his youngest son had had done to him. He said, "Cursed be Canaan! A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers." He also said, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant." After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now read verse 1 with me of chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, and Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now skip down to verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies. In their nations... And from all these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and it is inspired. It is God-breathed. It's authoritative in our life. This morning, I pray that you would take your word and you would apply it to our hearts. I pray that you would open our eyes to the wonder of grace. Open our eyes to see that in this world where sin is running crazy, that you, the God of the universe, are working to build your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. (laughs) We're going to laugh every time we hear those seats, right? Uh, our staff was like, can we really bring 10W40 in and like squeeze, right? We could. Now, when we started the series in Genesis, I told you that there will be times we're going to see some weird things. Welcome to the weirdness. I mean, right? I mean, this is a weird story. Here's what you got. You got Noah getting drunk, laying naked in his tent, and one of his sons sees him and goes outside and basically ridicules him for it. You got his other sons backing themselves into the tent to cover their dad. This is the kind of stuff, honestly, that uh, we probably aren't going to joke about with our friends. It's stuff we just certainly aren't going to talk about in mixed company. Yet here we have it in the Bible, right? So for those of you that think that the Bible isn't very straightforward about certain things, you're wrong, right? It's 
straightforward about a lot of things. And this is one of those moments. Now, the other thing that makes this story odd, if we if we're paying attention, is in our minds, culturally, we've really lost our sense of shame. We've lost our understanding of modesty. You know, pornography, the confusion of sexual ethics, the delusion of heterosexual and and homosexual immorality has just created, if you will, a callous on top of our cultural consciences. And we just don't see what the big deal is about this story in the Bible and why would there be so much distaste about this moment? And why is there consequences that go with something like this? It just doesn't seem right. So we've got to do some work this morning to just understand the heart of God in this. So to do that, let's just start with the first point in your outline, which is the the dishonor of sin compared to the honor of righteousness. Now, when you're reading the book of Genesis, if you remember our study as we've gone through this, you're going to notice that Moses, who's the author, he makes a lot of comparisons. He's compared Cain's half-hearted sacrifice to Abel's fully devoted sacrifice to God in Genesis chapter 4. He's compared righteous Noah, who walked with God, to the unrighteous citizens of the world who died in the flood in Genesis chapter 6. And we have one of those moments again when you have the comparison of the dishonorable act of Ham compared to the honorable act of his brothers. And Moses did it this way because he's attempting to show the people of God Israel, who were his recipients on their way to the promised land, why God set things up in the world the way that he set them up. He showed them that God has set this world up with certain laws by which God operates. And God deals with righteous people one way, and he deals with unrighteous people another way. And you'll see that all throughout the Bible. So the question when you're reading the story of Ham is you have to ask, what is the big deal? What what did he do that was so bad? Because the story is very straightforward. After the flood, Noah becomes a farmer. And specifically, he is growing some vines. And at some point in time, those vines grew to some grapes, and he decided to drink some wine of his vineyard, which doesn't seem like that big of a deal, nor does it seem like a bad idea. But things go south, when he gets drunk. Now, to be fair, most commentators are saying Noah probably did this out of complete ignorance, did it out of innocence, just drinking the wine that he took, enjoying what was there, and became it became drunk. This was not Noah going after the idea, I'm going to get blasted tonight and lay in my tent. This was a moment of seemingly innocence, ignorance, and just enjoying the fruit of the vine, which you'll find in the book of Proverbs, actually says that's a great blessing. Once he's drunk, though, he does unclothe himself in the tent, and he falls asleep. His son, Ham, and you'll notice a parenthetical phrase about Ham, that he's the father of Canaan. We'll come to that more in a moment. Ham saw his dad's nakedness, and instead of doing anything about it, he went outside and talked to his brothers about it outside the tent. Now, if you were an ancient Jewish person, hearing this story, there's several different things that are going to rattle off in your brain. The first one is, you knew from God's law, from Moses, as you're on the journey, Moses has taught you this, that to see somebody else naked other than your spouse was shameful. Just not something that was done. And two, you also know the role of parents was enormously important. Matter of fact, the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother, and they would have seen Ham as dishonoring his father. But thirdly, seeing Ham's action and and knowing he saw his dad nakedness and he goes outside of the tent and gossips to his brothers about it. Now, there's some indication in the language of the text that he didn't just go outside and say, hey, dad's in there, blasted, he's naked. The indication in the text was, that he was lewd about it, that he was mocking his dad. He was treating his dad like a joke. In a sense, what he was 
basically doing was ridiculing his father while his dad was in a compromised state. Now, A.P. Ross helps us kind of see this, how this act would have been portrayed in the Jewish mind when he wrote these words. It is difficult for people living in the modern world to understand and appreciate the modesty and discretion of privacy called for in ancient morality. Nakedness in the Old Testament was from the beginning a thing of shame for fallen humankind. To Adam and Eve as sinners, the state of nakedness was both undignified and vulnerable. To be exposed meant to be unprotected. To see someone uncovered was to bring dishonor and to gain advantage for potential exploitation. By mentioning that Cain entered and saw his father's nakedness, the text emphasizes that 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 this seeing was the disgusting thing. Ham's errant looking, a moral flaw, represented the first step in abandonment of a moral code. This violation of a boundary destroyed the honor of Noah. Ham desecrated a natural and sacred barrier. His going out to tell his brothers about it without covering the old man aggravated the act. See, again, this does not seem like a big deal to us because of all the immorality and lack of shame that we see around us or we can readily get on our TV screens at night. But to Moses' people, this would have been disastrous. As I've tried to think about it in our culture, our times, it'd be, it'd be similar to us coming into a room and mocking child abuse. Mocking old people abuse, mocking rape, laughing at molestation. That's what it would have felt like. Something you just do not do, something that is on the moral code of everybody in civilization going, we don't go there. That's what's happening here. Now, that act is contrasted with Shem and Japheth. Notice that when Ham told them, They put a blanket on their shoulders, and they basically walked backward until they laid this blanket over the top of their dad. Not much that's talked about here. It seems to be a very deliberate, very honorable act, acting rightly toward their dad and toward the moment. They worked hard to make sure that their dad's shame was covered. In contrast to... Ham's proud and lewd act, these brothers acted humbly, respectfully, and honorably. When they heard their dad was compromised, notice what they did. They did everything they could to cover it. Now, before we go to the next point, let's just draw out some things from that section alone to just get our brains wrapped around this. First, don't miss something about Noah. Noah sinned and put himself in a compromising position. All right, we've got to understand that. It's interesting that the sin in the text was not Noah drinking wine. It was Noah's drunkenness. And while he was under the influence, what happened? His judgment was impaired, and he laid naked in his tent, compromised. And we can certainly draw out some conclusions that would say sin always compromises us. And that's true. It always puts us in a position that are morally degrading and can be relationally challenging. Sin always hurts us. It always hurts others. But I don't want you to miss the fact that Noah sinned. There you go. Now, what's the big deal about that? Noah is the second great man of the Bible. Noah is the second forerunner to all of us. In other words, if the world had hope that they could move forward with a perfect man, they thought in their mind, Noah would be it. And what does Noah do? He sins. The first was Adam, who ate of the forbidden fruit. Now it's Noah who's indulging on another fruit. Showing us that Noah's heart was sinful just like our heart. We've seen this already in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, see, you might look around the world and think to yourself, 
people are basically pretty good and they seem to do the right thing. But compared to God and God's righteous actions, even a remote move to sin is evil in our hearts. This act of Noah reveals that Noah is evil in his heart, telling us something that the chain link of sin always comes to each one of us. It went from Adam to Noah to his son Ham, and we're going to see later, to the nations, because our hearts are evil from birth. We can't miss that. We can't miss it. Sin in the book of Genesis is spreading from Genesis 3 and is continuing to move forward. Don't miss that. But also don't miss that in the family of Noah, you're going to notice something fascinating. There are people of faith and there are people of unbelief. There are people who act righteously and, and honorably and there are people who don't. Earlier we saw that in Cain and Abel coming from Adam and Eve, didn't we? But we also see it here with, with, with Ham and Shem. We see it later in Jacob and Esau being born to the same family telling us that it doesn't matter which family you're born into, righteousness and unrighteousness come out of both families. Sin is at work in each family. And just think about this. The only children in the history of the world who were born to a perfect parent were Adam and Eve, and they still rebelled. Indicating to you, parents, sin and righteousness are in the world, and they could be in the same family. And being born into a Christian family does not indicate that your children will become Christian because you are Christian. They need faith. They need to believe in the living God. Don't miss that. Sin and righteousness are not based on the family you come from. They can come out of the same family. But also don't miss something else that we can only get from our vantage point into the story. Now, what I mean by that is we have the privilege of something that Moses' people didn't have. We have the privilege of knowing the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Notice something about this story that's fascinating. Ham, like Satan before him in Genesis chapter 3, uncovered his father and left him in shame. Ham saw it, didn't do anything about it. But Shem and Japheth, like God before them, covered their father's sin and shame with a blanket. Do you see the uncovering and covering motif in the story? Now, that's important because we saw this in Genesis 3 already. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they were naked and ashamed. And what did they do? They attempted to cover themselves. But God covered them instead with animal skin to say, I'm covering your shame and your guilt is covered now. See, here, here's the point. You and I, like Noah, are left naked and uncovered in our shame and our guilt. And our adversary, the devil, would like nothing more than to laugh at us, deride us, and expose us. But friends, that is not how our God operates. Our God covers our shame and guilt, and he delights to do so. Our God covers us with the righteous covering of Christ so that we are no longer exposed in our shame and our guilt and our sin. We see this written about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul wrote these words, He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, don't miss that this story is revealing to you the glories of Christ. It's revealing to us the need for our shame and guilt to be covered by somebody other than us. We don't have that ability. Jesus did that for us. And listen, he can do that for some of you here today. Maybe you've walked in the door, you're covered in the shame and the guilt of the things that you did this last week or just last night or on Friday night because it was St. Patrick's Day. And the God of the universe wants to say to you this morning, there can be freedom from shame and guilt by the power and the blood of Christ. So put your trust in Christ. 
Maybe you're a child of God this morning and you've walked in living in your shame and your guilt and all you can see is what you've done. And this text calls you to see that there is only one who covers you and he has already done it if you believe in him. This story reveals to you the righteousness of Christ covering you as that clothing that you cannot do on your own. So listen, church, listen, turn to Christ. Trust in this Savior. Believe this gospel with all your heart. Now let's turn to the second point, though, which is blessing and curse. At this point of the narrative, you're going to notice that Noah wakes up from his wine. I love how it says that. Noah wakes up from his wine, and he realizes what's happened. We're not told who told him or how he knew. We just know that he knows. He knows it's his youngest son, and knowing it was Ham, he invokes or speaks out a curse on Ham and on Ham's descendants, Canaan. And he invoked a blessing on Japheth and on Shem's descendants. Basically, what you have is a curse on sinfulness, and you have a blessing on righteousness. Now, this is a significant theme in the book of Genesis. When you read the book of Genesis, you are basically reading blessing on those who obey God and curse on those who don't. And the basic idea that is found in the book of Genesis is God will bless those who follow him with faith and do the right thing in faith, and he will curse those who don't do that. You're going to see this in this story. You're going to see it in Abraham's story as God says, I will bless your descendants and all who are in you, and I will curse any who are who are opposing you, and you're going to see it in the story of Joseph. You're going to see it all the way through the book of Genesis. At the most base level, this is what it is. God invoking and speaking out a blessing on righteousness and a curse on sin. But again, we've got to read this as Moses' people would have read it and heard it. What would they have heard in the backdrop of this story? Now, just remember where they are. They've been freed from Egypt after 400 years of slavery. They're on the road to go to the promised land, and Moses is leading them. And along the journey, Moses has potentially nightly campfire readings where Moses is reading to them the story of the book of Genesis. And now he's reading to them, and they know they're heading to the land of the promised land, which is the land of the Canaanites, the very people that Moses is invoking a curse upon in Genesis chapter 9. So when they hear this, this is stirring something in them. The land of the Canaanites was their promised land, the land that God had told them to go into, God would give it to them, and the place that now modern Israel now sits. The Canaanites, Ham's descendants throughout the Bible, were people from various tribes and languages and nations who opposed Israel. When you read the Bible, you're going to read about the Canaanites opposing them. People like the Babylonians, people like the Assyrians, like the Persians. And in the Old Testament, they were the arch enemies of God's people. So when Moses revealed the curse of God on the Canaanites in Genesis chapter 9, he is showing the people of Israel where the enemies of this land they're going to came from. If you want to know anything about the Canaanites, well, let's just look back at their forefather Ham. But why would Ham's lewd act in Genesis 9 affect people centuries later? Doesn't that seem mean? Is God being unjust in this act? Why is he doing this? Well, I think we get part of an answer in Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18 is, again, one of these books that Moses is writing along the journey. And you're going to read something in Genesis 18 that shows how God instructed his people to act when they get to the promised land and what they were to remember about where they came. Notice what he wrote to them in Leviticus 18. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, past tense, see? And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you, future tense. You shall walk in, not, you shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and and my and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules, 
If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now notice what he says next. Speaking of the sins in Egypt and the sins in Canaan, none of you shall approach any of his close relatives to uncovered nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, for it is your father's nakedness. See, Leviticus 18 is about the sin that God saw in Egypt and the sins he see operating in the Canaanites, the descendants of Ham. They were lewd. They were immoral. They were decadent. Leviticus 18 is about avoiding those various sins that are in these two places, which both places were descendants of Ham. And you're going to notice the same types of sin that was in Ham, their forefather. So when you read Genesis chapter 9 about the curse on Ham's descendants, here's what you're reading. It is a curse that would come upon the people of Ham's descendants because of their sins. Genesis 9 is a prophetic word of what God knew the Canaanites would become. Kenneth Matthews wrote it like this. Here, Genesis looks only to the social and religious life of Israel's ancient rival Canaan, whose immorality defiled their land and threatened Israel's religious fidelity. It is not an issue of ethnicity, but of the wicked practices that characterize the Canaanite culture. The biblical revelation made it clear that if Israel took up the customs of the Canaanites, they too would suffer expulsion. And Moses' hearers, when they would hear the story of Genesis, preparing to enter the promised land, the land of the Canaanites, they needed to know Genesis chapter 9. They would meet people, descendants of Ham, who were lewd, immoral, and were under a curse. Now notice the curse, though. The curse is clear. They would, they would become the servants of the descendants of Shem. What does that mean? The descendants of Shem were the Jewish people on the journey to the promised land. So if you were listening closely, you would hear what Moses is saying to his people. This is in Dave York paraphrase. Hey, people of God, on the journey to the promised land, before you get to the promised land, to take what I've commanded you and what I've promised you, you need to know something, that the people you're going to encounter are under Ham's curse. Ham is their forefather, and they will become your servants. Therefore, when you enter the promised land, do not fear them because you have nothing to be afraid of. Now, we know from biblical history, don't we? We know something of this story. We know this very thing happened. Eventually, the people of Israel entered the promised land under the leadership of Joshua and Caleb. Thank God for those two giants of the faith, right? They expelled some of the Canaanites, but not all of them. And we know that some of those Canaanites came underneath the rule of Israel. But because Israel did not expel all the Canaanites as God had directed them to do, the Canaanites were and still are a major thorn in their sides. Now, against the backdrop of that historical understanding, just draw out some things with me about this. Make note very clearly of how God has set this world up, friends. Make note of it. We will reap, like the Canaanites, what we sow. Make note of that. How we live now affects our future lives. What you believe in right now will affect your eternity down the road, right? The curse on the Canaanites was not without reason, and it wasn't simply because of their forefather, their forefather's sin. The curse of the Canaanites was because of their own sin. They were reaping what they had sown. You are going to find this all throughout the Bible. One of the best places to read it is in Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived, friends. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, 
will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Listen, you know this to be true, right? You sow orange seeds and you reap oranges. You sow pride, you're going to reap rebellion. You sow disobedience to God, you're going to reap the curse and wrath of God. One of the best things you can do in your life as a child of God is first ask yourself, when you're thinking about indulging in a temptation, is ask yourself, what will this sin look like when it's fully grown? Just a little cheating on my taxes here doesn't mean that big of a deal, but what does it mean next year? Just a little bit of conversation with somebody of the opposite sex where I feel that emotion running through my heart, and yet I'm married to somebody else. Where does that lead in 10 years? Just a little bit of lie, just to cover up something. That doesn't mean that big of a deal, right? But what does that lead down the road? You will always reap what you sow. And maybe you're not a child of God here, and you're just you're just sowing into your world your own sinfulness over and over and over again, thinking that down the road you'll eventually get your act together. Well, those of us that are old enough to tell you is you never get your act together, for one thing. And secondly, we always tell you, you will reap what you sow. You'll reap it in regret. You'll reap it in guilt. You'll reap it in shame. You'll reap it in things that you wish you'd never have to tell your kids about. The principle's true, and you find it all throughout Scripture. We sow disobedience to God. We will reap the curse and wrath of God. But the flip side of this is true as well, and I want you to be amazed by this. There is great blessing for people of faith who sow in faith. By the grace of God. The Jewish people entered the promised land by grace. They overcame some of the Canaanites by grace. They received God's blessing by grace. Shem and Japheth responded in faith to God by not defiling their dad by grace. And they were even, think about this, instruments of God's grace covering their dad's shame. What an amazing gift to be an instrument of God's grace, bringing the covering of Christ to other people. What what are the means of grace? And Moses' people were being told throughout this narrative, listen, fear not, children of God. I am with you. I will save you. I will give you what I promised you. Your enemies will not stand in your way. And children of God, can you hear God saying the same thing to you? Grace is on your side. Christian, your God will not leave you to your eternal enemies. You sow according to faith, you will reap eternal life. Your God is always with you. What what a remarkable gift. And when you read the story of Genesis 9, it's a very interesting one because we actually see ourselves on both sides of the, the blessing and the curse. I hope you see this. See, because of our sin, we all have a curse hanging over us. We're facing the curse and the wrath of God. Ephesians would tell us that we are targets of God's wrath. But listen to the blessing that is found in Galatians chapter 3 when Paul wrote these words, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Do you see blessing and curse? In Genesis 9 and Galatians 3, that Christ became a curse for us so that we might become the blessed people of God. That's the best example of hashtag blessed. I mean, right, don't let some cheesy cliche or some goofy song you hear on the radio steal hashtag blessed from you. What it really means is you are blessed in Christ. That the child of God, the son of God came to cover you in your shame and your guilt and display to you the glorious grace of God. He came to be as we are, yet lived without sin and died in our place, the death that we deserve so that we could become children of God. He not only covers our shame and our guilt, but he died so that we're no longer under the curse of God. What a remarkable gift. So listen, you you experience the blessing of God by trusting in Christ. Child of God, no matter what you came in with this morning, 
You have the blessing of God upon your life and your eternal enemies will never hang over your head anymore because your God is at work. If you're not a child of God and you came in under your curse and your shame and your guilt, you can, you can be freed of that by trusting in the glorious Redeemer, Jesus. What a gift. What a gift. Now let's finish by looking at a very brief point on chapter 10, which is the table of nations. Chapter 10, if you take time to read it, you're going to notice is the descendants of Noah, Ham, Japheth, and Shem. It's a second genealogy that we're given in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 5 was the first where we saw a list of individuals, and we saw them all but one die. The point of Genesis 5 is basically to say to us, when God told Adam and Eve that, you know, if you eat of this fruit, you're going to die, it happened. It shows us that sin has come to us all because death has come to us all. It's it's a picture of Romans chapter 5 that would say, if you don't think there's sin in the world, then you have to ask, why is there death in the world? Death in the world reveals that sin has come to us all. That's what Genesis 5 does. Genesis 10 does something different. You're going to notice that it, it, it does list individuals, but notice the focus in particular on nations that are derived from Noah's family. I'll just list a few of them. Verse 5, you have the coastland peoples in their languages, in their nations. Verse 8, you have the, the first great man listed, the potentially first king of Mesopotamia, Nimrod, listed. Verse 31, lands and nations. Verse 32, from these, <clears throat> these men, these, these sons of Noah and Noah, the nations spread abroad. Now, the assumption that is derived from Genesis chapter 10, they call it the table of nations, is that the sin of Noah and Adam and his sons go with them as they spread, and sin is advancing not just in individuals, but in nations of the world. So as you look around at your world, you're going to see sin in the United States. You're going to see it in Canada. You're going to see it in Mexico. You're going to see it all over the known world. Right? Friday night, my wife and I were on a, a phone call or a Zoom call about 8 o'clock at night with our Filipino brothers and sisters talking about marriage and life. And as we started the phone call, uh, Pastor Jeff said, hey, we just got done covering how to deal with hard sin in the church. And they're in the Philippines, some of the most happy people in the world. Sin is at work all over the world. That's what you read in Genesis chapter 10. But there's something else in Genesis 10 that I don't want you to miss. Israel is not listed. Now you go, yeah, it's because it's not time yet. That's true. Not listed. You're going to notice it more in Genesis 11 and 12, but you're going to notice one name listed that is verse 21, a guy named Eber. Like a big name, big deal. It's very subtle. It's not like what you read about Ham's descendants. When you read Genesis 10, it's going to feel like Ham's descendants are covering the page. And then you get to Japheth, then you get down to Shem, and you read about Eber and his descendants. It's quiet. It's small. Seemingly insignificant. Don't miss that. Because it's remarkably important. Because if you're a child of God and you're on the journey from the prom, from Egypt to the promised land, you know your history. And you would read Eber in that table of nations, and you would read something fascinating. So you would think, while sin gets all the headlines, God is on the move. While evil stands out on the map of nations in Genesis chapter 10, God's people are quietly being revealed and quietly being built. While sin seems to win the day, and when you read Genesis chapter 10, it looks like it's just filling the page. God's people are being silently protected by God. It's so important for you to see this. Because when you open up your newsfeed, you read your emails, you watch what's going on around the world, what does it look like all around? It looks like evil is winning the day. 
But what you would read in Genesis chapter 10 is just this subtle building of the people of God. God has not left his people. God is still moving them forward. See, God's people are like Noah or like Adam, covered in, in the skin of an animal. They're like Noah, lying in shame and misery, but are covered by grace. God's people are like Shem and Japheth, who in faith honor those whom God honors and walks according to God's ways because they want to honor God. And God's people are on the table of nations, but they are a small piece of the table of nations. They're being quietly built as they go about living their lives while God is building his kingdom and patiently growing his work. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. This map of the table of nations shows us sin advancing. Yes, it does. And it's discouraging at times. It's hard to watch because you see it all over the world. And you read in Genesis chapter 10, the first Apple news feed. Here's all the bad stuff going on around the world. But the map of nations shows us very subtly, hidden in plain sight, God's people being protected by God, growing into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And here's why this would be important to you if you're a child of God. Especially if you're Israel, especially if you're Christians in the 21st century. Israel is going to go, they're going to take the promised land. And if you've ever just paid attention a little bit, have you ever noticed how Israel is a small little place surrounded by enemies? You ever feel that way? We're just a small little lot surrounded by enemies. And sin is just winning the day. You ever wondered why God told his people in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I did not pick you in this world because you were the biggest, the strongest, the smartest, or the richest. I chose you because I set my love upon you. You ever wonder why God sent Jesus, the Son of God, to be born in a manger to Joseph and Mary, who were from the little town of Nazareth, where the Pharisees and the elite of the day said, can anything good come from Nazareth? You ever wonder why he started with a group of 120 people in a big town of Jerusalem? And in one day he shared the gospel broadly and 3,000 people came to faith that day. And then persecution hit and they took that gospel all over the known world, just quietly living in little towns where they were little tiny people in big, huge cities. Why were they doing that? What was happening? There. Why would God choose a king who did not come mounted as a military leader, but came to be the king hanging on a cross, a wooden cross, to be the great shepherd of his people? Here's why. God's people are hidden in plain sight while God is doing his work. Don't ever miss that. And while sin might get the headlines, grace is always on the move. Don't miss that. And you see it right here in Genesis chapter 9 and 10. Dear brothers and sisters, listen. Don't let your heart be troubled by what you see. Don't let your heart be troubled by all the stuff that you see and the banks failing and nations rising against other nations and all that mess going on because what you will see is God's plans will never fail. He will never lose sight of you. He'll never lose sight of his people. He'll never lose sight of his purposes. His eyes are always on his people, and he is patiently working, bringing all things about for his great glory and the good of his people. Imagine what great news this would have been for the people of God on the journey to the promised land, knowing, oh, we're going to face the Canaanites. And they're going to be our servants. Imagine what great news this is for you. That your God in the middle of a world that seems like it's up and down, topsy-turvy, crazy. Your God says, don't fear, little one. Because I will not only get you to the end, and you'll be mine. I will accomplish all of my works for the glory of my great name. And there will be a day when my righteousness will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Father, we want to do business with you this morning.
We thank you for revealing to us your great work in the midst of such decadence. Ham's act of lewdness did not stop the grace of God from being on display to his people. And I pray for your people right now. Help our unbelief. Forgive us for forgetting that you, the God of the universe, are at work. Forgive us for not trusting in your promises. Forgive us for seeing sin in the headlines and thinking that sin is running this universe. Forgive us. Forgive us for our anger and our misplaced anxiety. Church, where you're at right now before the Lord, would you just acknowledge your own fears, your own concerns, your own lack of faith? Do business with your God. Father, I pray for our friends who are here watching online that have not trusted in Christ this morning. And yet, Lord, they're living in shame and guilt, and they can feel it. They go to bed at night, and they're consumed with it. They think about the stuff they did during the day, and they just feel bad, and they don't know who to talk to, and they're wrestling with where they are before you. And I pray, God, that they would put their faith in Christ. If that's you this morning, we just invite you this morning. Just say to God, Lord, I believe in Jesus Christ as the one who's come for me, lived for me, and died for me. And I trust in Jesus to forgive me of my sins. And Father, stir hearts this morning. Open our eyes to the wonder of grace. The wonder of your power. That you are at work building your people and building your glory. You're doing it because you promised you would. There's nothing that will stop you from doing it. Nations warring against nations do not shock you and they don't take you by surprise. And you're not limited to our inadequacy and our failures. You are at work. By your spirit accomplishing everything you intended to do. And we, your people, put our trust and our hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.